I think. There it is. Uh, we're so glad you're here today. Uh, for the next several weeks, uh, we're doing this series that we're calling I Love My Church. And last week we explained how that phrase can be taken a lot of different ways and maybe not all good ways. For example, is it a marketing strategy? Is it another gimmicky thing to say? Uh, is it some kind of a boast? I love my church. Uh, is it a way that we try to brainwash each other? You know, we say things and just keep repeating them and then maybe they become reality. But the way that we should think about this phrase in this series is as a kind of covenant, as a pledge to one another, that I love my church, like a vow at a wedding perhaps. In other words, it's a way of saying, I'm an owner here. I'm fully vested as a stakeholder in this church. Yes, it's Christ's church, but it's also my church. Yes, I'm a member of Christ. I'm a member of his kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. But I'm also a member of this body at this time and in this place. I'm no longer just a spiritual freelancer floating around. Uh, this is my home. Uh, this is where I'm laying my roots. Uh, this to me is, is one of the most foundational uh, perspectives we can have on the church. A sense of ownership, identity, a covenant, a pledge. You know, not very many people are serious about church today. I don't think I need to tell you that. I think you probably sense that as well. You know, if I had a dime for every person that said to me, you know, I don't need church. Uh, I'd, I'd be doing pretty good right now. But it's also not just the church. It's also marriage and it's family. Marriage was once considered sacred and desirable and, and something to really aspire to and, and prepare yourself for. And what is marriage now? Likewise, godly families were considered indispensable. Uh, your role as a father, your role as a mother, you know, raising a godly family. It used to be seen that the family was kind of the backbone of society. But what's come of the family now? How far have our attitudes kind of deteriorated regarding these different divinely established institutions? Yes, these are divinely established institutions. God's got purposes and designs that he intends for his church and families and marriages to fulfill. And, and what is our attitude towards these things now? For example, take marriage. God created marriage to radiate the glory of his faithful love. Uh, when you look at the love of a, of a couple, that you should get a sense of God's love for Israel or a sense of Christ's love for the church. A husband's love for his wife, for, for her, for her husband. Uh, marriage is to declare God's faithful love. And that marital love isn't just uh, remaining there. It's, it's to bear much fruit. So in Malachi chapter 2, for example, it says, Has not one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring, godly offspring. Uh, godly marriages are to produce godly children. And at the end of the book of Malachi, interesting enough, the attention turns from marriage to the family. And we get a, a, a glimpse at the kind of ministry that John the Baptist and Jesus would bring in the Gospels. It says, look, I'm going to send you a prophet uh, like Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. 
And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. This is God's design in family, in marriage. Uh, What's the alternative to uh, these things? Well, the alternative is otherwise uh, I will come and strike the land with a curse. There is God's purposes, his plans, his designs, but then there's our designs. In Scripture, what we see is God hangs everything on godly marriages and families. And as goes marriage, so goes the children. And as goes the children, so goes society. And when it comes to society, we reap whatever has been sown in regards to marriage and family. You know, a lot of times we think, hey, we're really worried about this or that in society. We're really worried about the trajectory of things. And maybe I should vote this way or vote that way or whatever. But the most important thing to do is to build up godly marriages and godly families and godly churches. That is where the greatest impact is felt. That is how you change the whole trajectory and future of a society is you rebuild from the marriage to the family outward. So there's marriage and family, but there's also this vital institution that God has created called the church. And just like marriage and just like family, the church is to radiate the glory of God's faithful love. People should get a sense of God's love for Israel, Christ's love for the church, when they look at the the, the texture of relationships within the body of Christ, the church. Like a marriage, like the family, the church is also to produce generation after generation of godly offspring. And we're going to talk about that and what it means to make disciples and, and to build God's kingdom and, and, and to affect future generations. We're going to be unpacking that over the next few weeks. But there is no greater blessing to society than godly churches and godly marriages and godly families. This is the backbone. This is what brings strength to uh, people. But if you destroy these institutions, if you neglect them, if you devalue them, if you diminish or redefine or try to redesign them, you know, then the only thing that is really left is for the land to kind of fall under a curse. And that's why it's so important that we consider some of this teaching that we're doing in this series. This morning, I want to talk about the indispensable ingredient of a vibrant church. An indispensable agreement, uh, ingredient of a vibrant church. It's also the same ingredient that goes into a vibrant marriage and a vibrant family. It is the way, second to none, that we radiate God's glory. That ingredient is, in a word, love. But what is love? You know, we throw that word around. It's everywhere. What is love? You know, when love begins to break down between a man and a woman, a male and female, There's always a hashtag, me too. And there's always a story of how someone has been disillusioned or uh, has been exposed to the cruel side of a relationship. And often those stories relate to men and it's very true that men can be capable of great cruelty in relationships to women. It's also true that women can be capable of great cruelty in reverse as well. But under the hashtag MeToo or story after story of people that have been disillusioned by love in the marriage or in the family relationship, 
But lately, there's been another hashtag that's been popping up on social media, and it's the hashtag Church2. And it's kind of parallel to Me Too. And it's stories about how the church as an institution can be uh, capable of great cruelty and neglect of people. It's stories about how clergy or pastors and church leaders have violated trust or forsaken their responsibilities in love. And it's also true that just like leaders and institutions can fail in this regard, I think it's also true that members of a church can also be capable of great cruelty. But the headline out there for the church, for relationships, marriage, family, there's all these derogatory, negative stories of cruelty, of failure, of disillusionment. And it seems to me that our task as a church is to flip the script and for us to radiate God's glory and love in these exact same circles where people have experienced so much hurt and pain that God has commissioned us as a church to, to build up love in our churches and families and marriage, to, to change the narrative, if you will, right? When you type in church too, it should be stories of transformation and love, right? And, and marriage should be a place of enrichment and beauty where God's glory is, is, is radiating and unlocked. Now, before we go about hashtagging the opposite sex for whatever, or maybe even hashtagging the church now, maybe one of the things that I would urge us to do is to do some introspection. There is no harder question to ask of yourself than this question. The question is, am I a loving person? That is a very important question. That is a very hard question. Would people describe you, would they describe me as loving? This week, my thoughts went back to my first full-time ministry when I started preaching. And I became very aware that I was preaching in a spiritually toxic church. And so I could take time and, and I could list dozens of examples and you would agree and I could evoke your sympathies and you'd be like, poor John and, you know, whatever. But, you know, we derive a kind of self-righteousness, harsh tagging all of our experiences. You know, that was a typo in my notes, but I went with it. I was like, that's really what's happening with a lot of these hashtags. We're harsh tagging everyone around us that's failed us. And, and what we're not recognizing is that maybe we failed too and maybe we're part of that story and that equation. And so we get a sense of self-righteousness that, that I'm a person of love, but everybody else, they're all haters, right? One fall, I remember, I approached who at that time then was a longtime pastor of Southside Christian Church, Bob Green. And I asked Bob if he would be willing to mentor me because I clearly was not up for the challenges that I was facing and experiences and and something in me sensed that, that I needed some direction. Even though I had a Bible college degree and, and I was working on my master's, I realized that there were some deficits. And, and Bob is one of the most gracious, loving people that you could meet if you know him. And that's true as a pastor as well. And every week, I remember we would meet. And I would just spew all my church hurts and pastoral frustrations and this happened and that happened and there was this kind of criticism and they had these expectations and, and the elders did this and blah, 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 and on and on it went. And Bob would patiently listen 
to John Morset rail on and on. And I interpreted his silence as agreement. You know, when people are silent, that's when you really ought to be nervous. It's kind of like, they're kind of like, oh, dear Lord, what am I going to do with this conversation? But, you know, he would sit and listen. But then one week, he turned the tables on me. And after listening to me rehearse my story, he cut me off and he said, let's pray. And I was like, that sounds like a good idea. Okay, let's, I guess, yeah, let's do it. And he says, Lord, we can both see how heavy John's heart is. And he has some introduction. And he said, Lord, help him to learn to love people. Amen. He cut off the prayer like real quick. And I was like, oh, you know, there is nothing about anybody else there except, Lord, help John learn how to love people. Now, he might have prayed longer and more eloquently than that, but that's all I remember. And I sat there under full conviction because it was as if a mirror had been held up to my ugly soul. And, and that question that was raised in that prayer weighed heavily on me all that day, all that week, all that month, and to be honest, probably ever since. And that question is the same question I want you to wrestle with. Am I a loving person? If we understand love as an unconditional commitment to an imperfect people where we're trying to bring about like God's purpose and design, like how well am I doing? How well are you doing? Well, honestly, I wasn't doing very good. And, uh, you know, love wasn't necessarily on my radar in the way that it needed to be. And, uh, you know, couldn't we all use a bob in our life, you know? Uh, in James, it talks about how Scripture is like a mirror, that the Scripture sometimes will give us a, a picture or an image of ourselves and show us who we truly are. And, and you have two choices. You can walk away from that mirror and you can forget what you've seen and what you've been showing, or you can face it and try to grow through it. And what Bob prayed and, and what Scripture reflects is like a mirror. And I don't think we ought to dismiss what we see in that mirror too quickly. I think we need to deal with, as Michael Jackson sang, the man in the mirror, you know. We need to deal with what we're looking at there and what we see, what God's showing us, no matter how ugly it may be. And, it, you know, it gets uglier all the time in some ways. But anyway, there's some passages that, like a mirror, have been held up that have helped me evaluate my love. And hopefully they'll help you as well. One of the best passages is 1 Corinthians 13. It really convicts me. It starts off this way. If I speak human or angelic tongues but don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or like a clanging cymbal in a band, right? If I have the gift of prophecy, if I can understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can even move mountains but don't have love, I am nothing. I am nothing. And if I give away all of my possessions, and if I even give over all my body in martyrdom, right, in order to boast, but I don't have love, not only am I nothing, but I gain nothing. Now, Someone could be serving God in some pretty sensational and spectacular ways. You know, we love knowledge. We love all these different things. And, and you could be discharging all these 
things in your ministry and giving away your possessions, giving away your own body. I mean, yet if you don't have love, it's a zero before God. Love is not something that is just frivolous or extra or added on. It's really the main thing. It's really the substance of, of what we're to radiate on a personal level, on a corporate level, in our families, marriages, and beyond. I think of Matthew 7, where Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. Well, what's the Father's will? He tells us the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, and the other is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So on that day, there's going to be a bunch, Jesus says, that say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name? Didn't we do all these miracles in your name? And I'll announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. We could be the most busy, active, high-profile church in all of Springfield and beyond. But if we don't love God, and if that love doesn't overflow and translate into love for one another, it's a nothing. We aren't going to get by skating on the core law of God, which is to love God and love people. So if you think that you can dismiss this sermon as some kind of a flaky sermon about love, you're sadly mistaken. Because to God, love is everything. Now, what does love look like? First Corinthians 13, I like it that the Bible doesn't just leave vague as an ethereal, hollow banner that you can pour your own meaning into. Whenever the Bible talks about love, it pours meaning and substance into the idea of love by telling us who God is. So everything you read about love in the Bible is first and foremost about who God is in his relationship with us. But then everything you read about love is how we are to show God-like love to each other. So 1 Corinthians 13 is one of those passages about love, about God's love, and about our love. Love is patient. Love is kind. God's love is kind. It doesn't envy. It's not boastful. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not irritable. It doesn't keep records of rights and wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but it rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Now, I remember uh, back when Laura and I were dating, I had a friend who cautioned me that it's a really, really big deal if you tell a girl, I love you. So I didn't date in high school. And when I went to Bible college, I started dating Laura. She was the only one I was interested in dating. And we started dating. And this friend, you know, I took his advice to heart. And I waited and waited months and months to say those words. And, of course, you know, that same guy, he was a hypocrite because he spouted them off to his girlfriend within a week or two of dating. I mean, he was like, I love you. You know, I was like, what are you doing, dude? You just, you know, like follow your own advice. But anyway, one night I got up the nerve and I sprung those words on Laura. Laura, I love you. And I expected her to say those words right back. I had a certain way that I envisioned this whole thing going. But instead, she whipped out her Bible and went to 1 Corinthians 13 
and she wanted to make sure that I was on the same page that she was on. And it was, she was going through 1 Corinthians 13, emphasizing each phrase and applying it to myself. And, and when she finished, you know, I was like kind of overwhelmed and I was like trying to help my own cause. You know, I said, oh, I, I guess I'm not sure I love you. And, uh, and she was just like, that did not help. That, she was encouraging. What do you mean you don't love me? You know, and then it was like, I was like, oh, man. It's like, I'm just going to go away right now. So, but, you know, I know what you're thinking when you hear these verses. You're thinking marriage. And these verses certainly apply to marriage. They also apply to your family. You know, when you see these kinds of characteristics in a family, you ever just like say, how is it that, that family operates with that kind of, like, with a 1 Corinthians 13 kind of way. It's like, it's so emotionally healthy, it makes you sick. You know, like, it's like, my family was not like that, right? But it's not just about the family. These verses are first and foremost about the church. And guess who the church is? You and me. And so you have to take these verses and internalize their application. Don't just read through a list of words in the Bible quickly. Meditate on it and think through it. You know, well, I learn to be as patient as God works in others, but especially as at work in me. Will I learn to be patient in that way? You know, can I be kind even to the ungrateful and wicked? I mean, that's God's kindness. Can I be kind even to the ungrateful and wicked? Can I be satisfied where God has planted me and not envy the call or, or place or, or whatever it is that maybe others have been called to. You know, there's so much that we like to boast in, knowledge being one of those things, our strengths, our abilities, degrees, accomplishments, experience, all these things, strengths, abilities, gifts. Can I learn to boast in Christ crucified? Is it enough that I point to him, that he become greater and I become less? Can I stop looking down my nose in arrogance as if, I somehow need less grace than other people need. You know, can I stop rudely pushing forward, advancing myself, my vision, my agenda? You know, what do you think of when you think of lead pastors these days? You think of people that have an agenda and they're driving it and it's kind of a scorched earth. You're either on the bus or off the bus and, and I'm advancing my vision and advance. What's it look like to unplug from that? And to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and to let that be the guiding vision. Why do I have to supplant God's vision with my own in order to feel validated as a leader? I don't know. But can I overlook people's shortcomings and faults instead of being irritated with others? Can I let go of my hurts and forgive? Uh, can I truly seek for the good of others, even those that maybe aren't seeking good for me? Uh, must I embellish my grievances or perspectives or whatever it is? And, or can I just let the simple truth be enough and rejoice in that? Uh, can I learn to see God's work to completion instead of giving up early and often? You know, can I learn to bear all things and believe all things and hope all things and, and endure all things? Lord, help me not to grow weary in doing good. You know, these words are like a mirror. And, and it gets held up, and we realize just how blemished our love is, especially comparatively to the perfect love of Christ. 
This past week, I was reading a book called The Motive, and uh, it's written by Patrick Lencioni, and he's written like a dozen leadership fables, and they're all really good and very applicable uh, if you like to read uh, uh, business literature and things that will challenge you. But he wrote this book, and in the introduction, he writes, he goes, whenever I hear a graduation speaker exhort a group of students to go out into the world and be a leader, he says, I want to stand up and shout, no, please don't be a leader, unless you're going to do it for the right reason. And you're probably, and you probably aren't. That's kind of a cynical view, isn't it? But he points out that the motive for so many young people, and a lot of older leaders too, is the rewards that leadership brings with it, or appears to bring with it. You know, if you're a leader, you've got notoriety and status and power and, and maybe prestige and a level of income that goes with the position. And, and too many leaders are willing to embrace the perks of leadership, but not the demands of leadership. So many people want to pick and choose, uh, cherry pick, you know, and choose how they're going to spend their time and energy and all this stuff, rather than thinking about what the people they're supposed to lead most need, what the church most needs. If you're not going to be a leader and, 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 and labor through the demands of what that position requires of you to advance, then don't even consider the position. Don't put yourself in the middle of something, an organization, if you're going to be you know, on a different page than service. That's a pretty good word. Don't you think... That what can be true of leaders can also be true, though, of churchgoers. That, you know, as I read the New Testament, I just find myself convicted by the countless places where we're told to love one another. We often will affiliate, we'll make a covenant, we'll uh, come alongside a group of people for the benefits and the perks and the rewards. But are we willing to come by another person to do the work? You know, in John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus tells his disciples, I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I've loved you, you are also to love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. There is no larger print word in that verse than the word if. Everything hinges on love. If you love, they'll know you're my disciples. Love isn't, I, I hope that I can recalibrate your thinking about church. Love isn't an optional accessory to your church experience. Uh, it is to be your church experience. But more than just being your church experience, it's a, an experience that you're part of authoring and scripting and acting out. You are the one that helps create that script and make that script into reality. We are to love, not, not just reap love. We like to reap where others have sown. We are to sow into our marriages and families and church that which we want to see fruit come. And so on the one hand, I would say you should be loved and you should feel loved. You know, in your relationship with God, man, you should feel loved and, and realize that, that you are loved. Like Christ gave up his life and love for you. 
you're not going to find a more profound love. You should feel and experience that love and celebrate and worship that love. But that love is to be transformative. And so on the one hand, you're feeling and you're being loved, but on the other hand, you should be loving and actively love one another. So the command that Jesus gives here is not be loved and demand love. That was one of the things I struggled with most when I started ministry was all the people that would demand love. You know, greet me, shake my hand, do this, do that, show up here. Like, it was overwhelming to be on the receiving end of all the demands and expectations. I was like, wow, that was an adjustment. The command isn't to demand and and just to reap, but it's to love one another. And, And our motive ought to be to love one another, and and to love one another as Christ loved and gave himself up for us. That is what our church experience should be all about. Now, I'll tell you a little secret. There are times when pastors question their call, and if there's one reason I sometimes doubt my call as a pastor, if there's a reason for it, it's because of love. It's because of love. Now, if, if I were to boil our mission as a church down to just a few words, it would be that we are to be a body that builds itself up in love. Ephesians 4.16 says this. From Jesus, the whole body gets fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, and the church promotes the growth of the body for the building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. That is a mouthful. But the key phrase is that we ought to be building ourselves up. We ought to be building the church up. The church builds itself up in love as each part does its proper work. Well, if you're not loving, you're not working properly. You're broke if you're not keyed into love. You need to be healed. You need to be uh, discipled and brought to maturity and, and adulthood, as Paul would say, right? But But when we're doing each our part, this place, we're building one another up in love. That is the fuel of the church, right? So our job is to help the body, the church, build itself up in love with each part doing its work. So the question for me is, am I doing my part in that equation? I hope it's a question for you too, but am I doing my part? Would I describe myself as loving Would my wife describe me as loving? Not when I use her in sermon illustrations, but would my family describe me as loving? Would people in the church describe me as loving? And those are really hard questions because I think the answer is ish, you know, ish maybe. Like there's Christ's perfect love and, you know, know, here's other, but like maybe like where am I at in that spectrum? That is a very hard thing to wrestle with. And the degree that you question your own capacity and, and, and the fruit of love and your ability to exude and radiate that, like to the degree that you question that, you question your call sometimes. But the other part of it is, is that we all need to be promoting Lakeside's proper growth. We talk about attendance and we talk about growth in a lot of weird ways. But the most important growth for a church is, are we growing in love? Are are we a loving church? Is everyone here doing their part? 
Are you doing your part loving others as Christ loved you? Do people readily identify us as Christ's disciples by our love as a body? You know, sometimes I feel that I have so much growing to do in this area of love, of learning to love myself, that I have no business standing up here teaching or preaching about it to anyone else. And my impulse is I need to quit, I need to go on a retreat, I need to withdraw, and I need to go off by myself, and I need to work on becoming a loving more person. But that's not how it works. We actually learn love by our imperfect self being connected into imperfect relationships and, and struggling through it and the power of the Holy Spirit transforming us. And like you got to stay plugged in even in difficulties and challenges. And like you got to push through it. That's how we learn love. But, but part of me is like maybe I need to evacuate. No. I have to find peace growing in love myself while somehow trying to help others grow in love. I'm not sure that's the greatest job description, but that's really what being a pastor, being a Christian, being a parent, being a mom, a dad, that's what it is. You're trying to get peace, growing and love yourself like Christ while trying to help others around you do the same. You're trying to build a 747 while also trying to fly it. I don't know. But don't you feel that way? And yet we can't give up. We have to lean into that. In addition to 1 Corinthians 13, there's a whole list of one another commandments in the Bible. The Bible never lets us, again, think of love sentimentally. You can't flake out. It's always concrete, tangible, specific things so that you're left with no doubt about whether or not you're growing in love. Take unity, for example. There are all these commands about how we need to strive for unity as a body. You know, I was thinking back over the last couple of years, and there were some flashpoints here at Lakeside when people became divided about stuff. Did you know that? Masks were a point of division. Vaccinations were a point of division. Political movements and, and men and different things were a flashpoint. How you felt about things, how you voted. Did you know that that was a point of division? Of course you knew. And in retrospect, when you're going through it, it's like, Wow, who's going to get mad and leave this week, you know? And it's like all these people and churches have resorted and everybody's kind of ideologically all over the place and, and resorted into their camps. And that's what's happening right now in the body of Christ at a large level. But, you know, going back, you know, in retrospect, I would say, you know, if you would just, if we could just chill out three months, six months, just breathe a little bit, right? We wouldn't have had any reason for division. Because look at when you look back, look how ridiculous some of those relationships that got destroyed did not have to be destroyed for the things that they got destroyed over, if you look back in retrospect. So there's all these commandments, like be at peace with one another. Don't grumble among one another. Like be of the same mind of one another, which means work through your differences and, and, and find agreement with each other and, and have conversations and dialogue. Accept one another. Wait for one another before eating. Don't bite, devour, and consume each other. Don't challenge or envy one another. Gently, patiently tolerate one another. Be kind, tender-hearted. Forgive one another. I forgive you for thinking that way. Uh, bear with one another. Oh, boy, here it comes. They're going to give me their little, okay. Bear with one another. Don't repay 
evil for evil. Seek the good of one another. Confess your sins to one another. We have to do better going forward in regards to unity. An expression of love, the substance of love is unity as a body. Every division is going to be exacerbated politically, ideologically, more and more as we go forward. I don't think it's going to get better. We have to be united in love. Uh, love one another. Through love, serve one another. Tolerate one another in love. Greet one another. Be devoted to one another in love, serving each other. We're going to talk about spiritual gifts and serving one another next week and what that actually looks like and means and how the body functions. And, and we have to be serious about building what God wants built. Humility is a face of love. Wash one another's feet. Give preference to one another. Don't be haughty. Be of the same mind. Serve one another. Be subject to one another. Regard other people as more important than yourself. Clothe yourselves in humility toward one another. Discipleship. Building up the next generation and one another in love. How do you do it? Don't judge one another. Don't put stumbling blocks in front of each other's paths. Speak the truth and love to one another. Don't lie to one another. Comfort one another with the hope of the resurrection. Encourage one another. Build each other up. Stimulate one another to love and good deeds instead of to hate and vitriol. Pray for one another. Like open your homes and, and be hospitable to one another. That is something that would be transformative, that we would open our homes to each other, that we wouldn't just have relationships that are church relationships, lobby relationships, but that we'd open our lives and homes and actually get people like, wow, the Bible's pretty relevant on stuff. Teach and admonish one another with songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. By this all men will know you are my disciples, Jesus said. If you love one another. This is not an apology, but this is a declaration for myself, is that when it comes to love, I've committed myself to being a lifelong learner. The more I learn about love, the more I realize how deficient in love I am. But the more I look at Christ's perfect love, the more inspired I am that I'm a lifelong learner when it comes to love. And that's what we all ought to be in the church is, yeah, we come kind of bruised and whatever and harsh-tagged or hashtagged or whatever. Like, we all come, but we're going to flip the script and we're going to author a new experience together, right? We're going to live it out. And, and people are going to know by the love that they see. It's a commitment. It's a covenant to love one another as we've been loved. No excuses anymore. Let's be lifelong learners in love. Let's pray. Dear Father, we pray that you would recalibrate our church experience to understand what love is and to show that love in tangible, concrete ways. May we be actively loving one another and realize our purpose is to love and not just to be loved and feel loved, but to love, to sacrifice, to give ourselves to one another, enduring, believing all things and pushing so that your purpose can become a reality in our lives, and there's no greater purpose than us building ourselves up in your love. We pray that you make us competent in this. In Jesus' name, amen.